Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. I'm Dr. Steve Wood. Solo podcast today. You know, Bill and I got some really good feedback about our series on the 13 cognitive distortions that are crippling your witnesses. And if you haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to go back and, and check that out. In today's podcast, I really wanted to build on that a little bit more and talk about theories, concepts that can also be integrated in your thought process as far as when you're dealing with witnesses and helping to explain why some witnesses make mistakes. And the first one I want to talk about is the Yerkes-Dodson law. And what that law states is that essentially when you look at a performance graph, it's kind of a bell curve as far as what's optimal performance as it relates to the level of anxiety that's being held or experienced by the individual. So kind of on that low end part on one side, you have poor performance based upon the fact that the arousal is very, very low. And then on the other side, you have poor performance because arousal is, is very, very high. And like I said, there's kind of that peak of it's okay to have a little bit of arousal, but pushing it one way or the other is going to lead to disastrous outcomes as performance goes. So let's think about the low end. Low end would be those witnesses that we probably have all dealt with where you know they've been deposed four or five times and they feel comfortable with the deposition process and they feel comfortable that they're not gonna get quote unquote tricked by opposing counsel. But what ends up happening is that comfort level, that kind of confidence in what they're doing actually leads them to feel too comfortable and give these long-winded rambling explanations because like I said, they don't, they don't have the same level of anxiety and they're not worried about making sure that their answers are short and concise because they figure, you know what, I've done this several times before. I did good. I have confidence that I can do good. Therefore, any of the rules that typically apply to witnesses who have never testified before don't really apply to me because I know what I'm doing. Once again, I've, I've read tr countless transcripts where that's happened that as soon as I see at the very beginning when they ask, how many times have you been if you've been deposed before and you see multiple times that that person has been deposed, later on as the deposition progresses, you can see answers get longer and longer, more information being volunteered all of the time. On the other end, obviously we have those, those first time witnesses who are just scared to death, right? They're worried about how am I supposed to answer this question? What are the six or seven specific words that I'm supposed to use? If I get asked this, how am I supposed to answer it? So what's happening is rather than just answering the question, you know, they're, they're looking for the right words. So I always, when I talk to my witnesses, I always tell them, you know, give the right answer, not the quote unquote right answer, meaning give the answer that you should give in your own words, in your own thoughts. Don't worry so much about getting the words exactly correct, because when that happens, you start overthinking the responses. And before you know it, your brain locks up, your brain freezes and you give a poor answer. And then when we go back and look at the transcript later, you say, why the heck did you say that? A lot of times the witnesses will look at you and say, I have no idea. But that's because the level of anxiety, their level of stress got too high, pushed past that limit and caused them to give poor testimony. I think that's why it's important when working with witnesses and when we work with witnesses, we always do mock cross-examination because that what that does is, you know, it allows for the witnesses to get comfortable, it allows for them to have that really high level of arousal in a, in a safe space so that when they get into the deposition, yeah, they're going to be anxious. They're going to be a little bit nervous, but that's fine because you do want some level of anxiety. You do want some level of nervousness because that will allow you to perform at a peak level. You just don't want to go one way or the other. 
The second one uh, is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what the Dunning-Kruger effect states is that essentially we evaluate ourselves and our performance as higher than others. And it's oftentimes higher than it, what it really is. So if you think about it from the driving example, if you were to ask a bunch of individuals and there's studies out there talk about Americans or some of the worst, where you ask about whether or not you believe you're actually a good driver, essentially a lot of people will say, yeah, I'm a good driver, but everyone else is terrible. Okay, well, how can it be that everyone else is good, but everybody else is also terrible at the same time? All right, we evaluate our abilities much higher. And this typically happens in instances where someone is not experienced in that area. And the reason why is, it's the whole idea of you don't know what you don't know. You know, someone who is inexperienced in a certain area thinks they know more than they really do because they don't have the vast knowledge to know that their area, their expertise of what they think is actually only very, very small piece of what the real knowledge is that's out there. And to put that in perspective of witnesses, I mean, there's few things that cause me more concern than when I'm talking to a witness and talking to him about, you know, being short and concise rather than giving long-winded explanations, making sure that they don't become emotional or argumentative or fight or try to get snarky or any of that type of stuff. And when I do that and a witness says, no, I, I would never do that. Uh, uh, somebody else might do that. I would never do that. I'm calm and cool. Uh, you know, th that would never be an issue for me. Well, then what happens is let's fast forward about two hours into the training and we start doing mock questions. And, you know, before you know it, they're arguing, they're being snarky, they're giving long-winded explanations, they're being defensive. They're doing all those things that they said they wouldn't do and that they assured me they were going to never do. So I get a lot of concern when a witness says, I would never do that, only other people do that. So I think what helps in that situation is to kind of open those witnesses' eyes when you're doing your mock questions and when they make those mistakes to point them out and identify, okay, you just did the exact same thing you, you said you weren't going to do. What ends up happening is allowing them to see, okay, well, maybe I don't know as much as I really think I know. Maybe I'm not as good as this as I thought I was. And if you can get witnesses to that point to kind of get to the point where they realize they don't know as much as they think they do, then they're a little bit more receptive to the idea of, you know, listening to the training and kind of putting things into practice that you've been in trying to instill in them rather than just say, yeah, that's great. I would never do that. So this isn't really pertinent to me. Let's move on past this. We're wasting time on a topic that I'm not going to have to worry about. Number three topic is evaluation apprehension. Okay. We've talked before about public speaking on the, on the podcast and how basically people are more terrified of public speaking than they are of death. You know, people would rather die than get up in front of a group of people and talk. And part of it is because of this apprehension, uh, evaluation apprehension, right? They, they're concerned as they're up there in front of a group of people that all these people are sitting around essentially passing judgment on them, worrying about whether or not they're credible or whether or not they're knowledgeable, whether or not they like them. You know, so it causes a lot of anxiety for people to give speeches because, like I said, they're, they're, they're worried people think they're an idiot and, and not paying attention to them. So it gets, causes them all sorts of concern. Putting that into perspective of a witness, witnesses are in the same boat, both in deposition and especially at trial. But in a deposition, a lot of times witnesses have this apprehension because they're afraid, I'm going to give an answer that opposing counsel is not going to like. I'm going to do something that opposing counsel is going to call me into question my credibility, my knowledge, my experience. 
And what's going to happen is then they're going to make me look foolish and they're going to, you know, it's going to make me look not credible or they're not going to be happy with my responses. So what ends up happening is opposing counsel on the other side starts pushing, starts prodding, starts asking additional follow-up questions, starts doing things that makes the witness think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not doing a good job. They don't think I'm competent. So how do we fix that apprehension from a witness perspective as far as how they think they're going to fix it? Well, how do they fix it? Well, they fix it by saying, okay, you're right. I'm going to be a better witness. I'm going to start giving answers to you that you agree with, that you think make more sense to you, that you give me the feeling that I'm being credible. The problem is when that happens, as we all know, once that happens and opposing counsel likes your answers, opposing counsel is happy with how you're responding. Opposing counsel is giving you the idea that, oh yes, please tell me more about that. You're so credible and knowledgeable. Please tell me more. It's the exact opposite of what we want witnesses to do, right? Because if that's the case, if opposing counsel is happy with the responses, you're probably screwing up the deposition. So witnesses have to understand that it's okay to feel that apprehension and that nothing you say is going to matter to opposing counsel. They're not going to like your answers. doesn't matter. They don't have to like your answers. And, you know, same thing. It only matters at trial as well. Jurors, yes, jurors should be considerate of your answers. And you want to make sure that you're getting your point across to the jurors. But once again, at trial, even if opposing counsel is up there on cross-examination while you're testifying, hemming and hawing and, and raising their voice and doing all these things, once again, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what they think. Doesn't matter whether or not they think you're not credible, whether or not they're happy with your responses. Just push through it and understand that when they're upset and angry, it's because you're being a good witness and keep what you're doing and don't worry about what their thoughts are. And then finally, talking about thin slicing. Okay, thin slicing is a topic or a, a notion that's been around really since 1992, but it got really popular with um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. And the idea of thin slicing is that individuals tend to take very small pieces of information and make decisions quickly on that, right? Little small two to five second kind of interactions. If you were watching someone, people use this kind of mental shortcut to say, okay, I've seen enough to be able to come to a value judgment about this person. Do I like them? Are they credible? Are they knowledgeable? And, you know, essentially when you think about that from a deposition standpoint, this is where video depositions, especially too, when you know, you're going to be seen, potentially seen by jurors, you want to make sure that those sound bites, if there are any, are appropriate, show you to be appropriate, credible, knowledgeable. What you don't want is the sound bite where that five second snippet is the witness being snarky, the witness pushing back with counsel, the witness doing something that if the jurors were to see that, that little snippet is going to be the piece of information that they use to develop a concept of how credible they are. Another point on that too, when you talk about thin slicing, another concept that comes up often, especially with Zoom, that I don't think a lot of attorneys or witnesses, especially witnesses, think about is camera angles. I mean, how many times have we think about we're seeing a Zoom deposition and someone's face is right up against the camera and you can almost look up their nostrils on it because they've leaned so far in in order to to give their answer because they can't hear anything. The other, you know, the other thing we've seen too is you got the camera angled down and pointing up or, or down, it's up high and it's pointing down. So the camera angles are all over the place. And what's essentially doing is, is making it difficult for jurors if they were to see the deposition, it makes it difficult to see the witness's face. 
add on to that lighting issues. You know, witnesses are sitting in, in their in their dining room with no lights around everywhere, and it's really, really dark, and there's being shadows cast on the, the individual's face. Once again, not good if an attorney were to pull a slice of your deposition out, going to make the witness look bad, going to lead to bad evaluations, negative evaluations on the perspective of a juror. Another topic on that as well that a lot of witnesses don't think about is your background. I mean, how many times have you think in a deposition, someone's sitting at home in their, in, in on a Zoom and, and they're in their, their office or they're in their living room or whatever, and, and behind them is, is something, you know, I, I've seen it before, you know, you got somebody with like a, a statue of a middle finger in the background, not even think anything of it. I mean, how do you think that's going to look if that ever gets actually played to the jury? Another thing I can think of, there was a witness once that was a, someone from the military and they had a poster with a silhouette of a bunch of military people holding guns. Perfectly fine in a normal instance, but in a situation when you have a deposition and the individual is being deposed as it relates to a hostile working environment, probably not the best thing to have behind them in a deposition if they were going to be recorded. Once again, always thinking about the fact that people will take small pieces of information, very, very thin slices of information, and right, wrong, or indifferent, generate and develop ideas about someone, about whether they're credible, competent, and you know whether or not they're believable. So always keeping that in mind as well to help witnesses eliminate those, those aspects, but to also help prepare them for their deposition so that their responses are always accurate and appropriate so that it really eliminates and reduces the amount of sound bites that opposing counsel is going to have. Then they don't have as much to be able to show to the jury. And then you're in a better position to make sure that your witnesses, the only sort of evaluations that are being had on them are the ones that are being done while they're in the witness box on the witness stand at trial, which is a lot more easy for them to develop credibility and a lot easier for them to be able to have a larger sample size of sorts of nonverbal behaviors, gestures, tones, mannerisms to be able to help develop their perceptions of the witness versus taking this two to three second snippet that opposing counsel pulled out. And it's only obviously the bad things that they've said or done only cast them in a negative light. So those are four other additional ones that I wanted to add in that caught me thinking after the 13 cognitive distortions that we talked about. You know, Bill and I will be back to talk a little bit more about some other psychological concepts, always trying to make sure that we're finding ways to think you know, about the attorneys and how, how we can better assist our clients and, and keep our witnesses effective during deposition and effective at trial. Make sure you go to courtroomsciences.com. We have all of our papers, blogs, information up on that. And also to make sure you check us out on any of your YouTube, Spotify platforms, like, and subscribe. If you're a YouTube, hit the like button or hit the, the five-star button on any of the other podcasts. We greatly appreciate it. As always, appreciate you as, as the listeners. Appreciate everybody and their great feedback. We'll see you on another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Science.